You're tuning in to the Black Hollywood Live Network, featuring news, interviews, and commentary on all things Black Hollywood. Hollywood redefined. From Los Angeles, California, streaming live thanks to Akamai Technologies, this is Black Hollywood Live. Justice is served. Featuring the week's roundup and commentary on legal news. Black Hollywood Live. Hollywood redefined. You're listening to Black Hollywood Live. And now, the host for Black Hollywood Live, Justice is served. Hello and welcome to Black Hollywood Live's Justice is Served, where we bring you the latest in legal news from around the country every week right here. My name is Chelsea Galicia. I am joined today by my co-hosts, BJ Abron, Shaka Smith, and special guest, our UCLA law student, uh, Shannon Myricks. Thanks everyone for being here. Let, let us dive right into this rundown with some good news about professionals being held accountable, shall mm-hmm. we? Uh, this, the first story was shocking to me, although yes. I think it's a long time coming. And that is the case of a doctor here in California who has been convicted of murder and sentenced to 30 years to life in prison for prescribing her patients too much pain medication which led to them overdosing and dying. Uh, is anybody else as shocked as I was? I mean, well, <clears throat> I think you'd be shocked that uh, the sentencing, you know, that, that she was convicted. Um, but in terms of, uh, you know, did she deserve it? Of course. So I yeah. wasn't shocked, you know, from that perspective. But um, I think it's about time that we finally seen this happen. Well, well, initially I was shocked just because I thought murder, you know, how did the doctor prescribing drugs lead to that? And then you find out that she, she'd gotten three other kind of warnings before this where the patient she'd prescribed these drugs to died. Right. So the coroner she- was calling up, making courtesy, like FYI calls, like, hey, lady, your patients are dying here. Yeah, and she's right. largely taking cash payments for the prescriptions. And so, so now she knows there's a reasonable nexus between what she's doing and their deaths. And so, there's yeah, once I realized that. Yeah. The extent of her bad behavior. She was a bad actor and that she was kind of known around the neighborhood as the doctor that would pretty much give you anything if you want it. Mm-hmm. She had a lot of young white male clients who are, you know, common uh, heroin and painkiller abusers. Yeah. So uh, she kind of went beyond, you know, just maybe accidentally prescribing too much or not yeah. minding yeah. the warning calls. She seemed to have been a bad actor. So these three that. gentlemen who died were all in their 20s, so you know, otherwise would have been healthy, we assume. And they came for pain medication. And what you talked about with the heroin problem is very related, even though she wasn't prescribing heroin. Yes. Because what tends to happen is that these people get started on pain medication. Yep. And then when they cannot afford it anymore, we'll resort to something like heroin. Yes. And this is known to have contributed immensely to the crazy epidemic of heroin use and these uh, pain medications right. in overdosing. I think I heard 44 people die a day of these kinds of overdoses. So mm-hmm. this is a really serious issue. And other doctors have been prosecuted for uh, over-prescribing, but this is the first time that somebody's been convicted of murder. Well, she had specific knowledge that, that what she had done led directly right, to the deaths right. of these patients. So, yeah, it was kind of ludicrous that they kind of washed it away as an FYI, your patients are dying. Yeah. And this is, you know, 
been painted as this lady who got really greedy. You know, tax returns so show she was making about $5 million a year as a solo practitioner who had a clinic in a strip mall where people would drive from far and wide to come pay cash, yeah. mostly, for a lot of this. Do you feel that there's any um, sense to... I mean, I don't think she presented this as an argument, but I think, as a doctor, if you don't prescribe these medications, A, my patient's going to go somewhere else to the next doctor who will... Or B, will then resort to heroin. So maybe I'm better off giving them these prescription medications. You you have a duty. You have a duty to uphold what you're supposed to be doing, which is prescribing medicine that needs to be prescribed. You can't think about what the person might do next or, you know, if they're going to go to somebody else and get this. Now, if it's a circumstance where it's on the gate as to whether you can give her this medicine or not. But clearly, these are indicators and based on, you know, the individuals who have already passed away and that notification that clearly this is going to lead or is highly likely to lead. And to me, her acts were unjustifiable. Um, which we would yeah. call to, you know, yeah. to, to human life. They take that oath, do no harm. And so that's chief for every doctor. And so, yeah. I think this was especially sad, too, is that the doctor herself had received calls mm-hmm. from family members of these patients who died begging her, please stop, please stop. And she said she was just in denial about what she was doing, felt right. that what her patients did was beyond her control. But how is that the, they controlled the pen that wrote the prescription? I didn't really understand that defense. Did any of her defense make sense to you? I, I mean, I think it's uh, a greed defense. That, that's really all. When yeah. you you put all of that stuff together, um, not to say that I buy it, but um, when you're when you when you're greedy for money, you start to create these false perceptions in your mind. Yeah, yeah, to disconnect and disengage yourself from the harmful acts that you're actually doing. And I think that that actually did take place. Should we be remorseful yeah. in terms, you know, in terms of her sentencing? Of course not. But but I do understand in some ways her idea that you are an individual who has your own responsibility. But what she did is she had a position of trust and of care, and she just lost that idea and sense of her duty to that patient. Yeah. You know, she's I looking at it as two friends, maybe. You know, there's no actual duty to that person. It's also the fact that medical professionals sit in a very, you know, serious position of power, mm-hmm. and I think it's important that we regulate and check that power. Um, she's to, you know, she stands between life and death for many patients, any doctor does. So I think it's important that we don't let greed, like BJ said, get in the way of that. Do you think mm-hmm. this is a good deterrent for other doctors? Or do you think there's just too much money to be made in these kind of practices? I mean, I think it's definitely uh, somewhat of a deterrent, but uh, it's not even about the money to be made. It's the safeguard that, you know, many that many doctors have. Like, a, a lot of doctors are just simply protected. They go, it took three times where this person was notified, yeah. and it, nothing happens. It happens so often. And I think what, you know, and you touched basis on that today, this is a message to the day and time in the, in the epidemic of heroin and prescription drug use. That's really what this is about. That's the reason why you're seeing that this stuff is happening today. And so if enough doctors are deterred, it will slow the amount of medication that gets into the market. Yeah, I think this story helps, but yeah, we've seen more like this. And I think they're really pushing enforcement of cracking down on these kind of doctors. Yeah. All right. So lawyers themselves are also not immune Mm -hmm. from uh, getting in trouble and being held accountable. This one, this was not a criminal... um, sort of conviction or anything like that, but a a prosecutor did get disbarred for lying to a jury. It seems like that should be a no-brainer, but it actually doesn't happen all that often. And it's hard, actually. It's rarely that it happens. It's so many different things 
um, that take place before that happens that you rarely see people like like I mean that's one thing in law school we go through all of these courses on ethics but um, you know at least our professors they let it be known that you know but at the end of the day it's really hard for someone to actually get disbarred and it's the truth and it shouldn't be that way especially yeah. when you see these criminal acts yeah. we're talking about just disbarment but these are criminal acts that took place here right so this prosecutor from Texas he his name is Charles Sebasta he lied and presented presented false testimony that got somebody uh, in prison for the murder of six people. I, uh, somebody let, uh, lit a fire that killed six people and got it convicted of this when he knew that another guy did it and that other guy was convicted. And then he had, what was his name? Graves? Is that Graves, the right. Yes. So Graves was already convicted and then he tried to get Graves or did I get he, this no, yeah, con- He tried confused? to get Graves conv- convicted. The first guy um, Robert Carter. Yeah, that he copped to it. And initially, it sounds like he indicated Graves may have been a part of it, saying he was leaned on by Sebesta. Um, however, Gra- he then says, Carter then says, Graves did not help me. I did this by myself. I did this alone. And that's information he never shared with anybody else. And in fact, presented to the jury. That, just the first part that he was implicated. And, and, just, for, and just to be clear on that, once, uh, you know, we talked about this on our Making a Murder series, that once a prosecutor has that evidence, um, exculpatory. He, exculpatory evidence. He is obligated to turn that over to the defense. And he never, not only did he not mention it at trial, he never turned that information over to the defense at all. So in, in failing to say anything about it, this man served 18 years yeah. in prison for something that he didn't do. And once more, I believe he had a defense witness that um, he intimidated. and he The t- prosecutor did, yeah. Yeah, and the prosecutor um, told the defense witness that they were um, being looked at for the murder. And the defense witness got scared and left and didn't testify. Yeah. I think so. it's also interesting that making a murder is actually getting some credit for bringing some of these stories to light yeah. and providing more attention, spotlight well, on the, misconduct cases. I think cases. the public is hungry now for these justice cases, and so I think it only helps, you know. But that's the, that speaks to the power of it, uh, of the media in doing mm-hmm. its job and informing the public of this type of behaviors that yeah. take place. And also for, the the viewers who then find learn this information and then do something with it, yeah. apply pressure, ask questions, stand up. Absolutely. Um, so and notice, making a murder was not on a major media outlet. It's, it's through Netflix. Yeah. Netflix. Netflix. Yeah. All right. So now, of course, we have to bring you updates on officer shootings. We have three of them today. We'll start with uh, Mario Woods. He was shot and killed in San Francisco back in December, but he's reemerged in the news this week because Beyonce did somewhat of a tribute to him as part of her Super Bowl performance just this last weekend. Um, We do have the video here, and we're going to show that. It is... Um, a bit graphic. Yeah, a little jarring. So yes. prepare yourself. And then we'll have uh, Shannon tell us more about it. Okay. Are you fucking serious? Are you fucking serious? Okay. 
All right, as you can see, this was done in front of a bus that was full of people. All right, if we can cut the the tape. Thank you. So when you just look at this, just by itself, what did you think, Shannon? My first reaction was, oh my, look at this one man. He looks, he looks significantly smaller than the officers. Yeah. Cornered, uh, what looks like almost a standing fetal position. But then you hear the audio and you hear a woman saying, drop it, drop it. So then I start to dial back a bit and I'm like, this doesn't seem like a, to, seems like a real police brutality case. He may have been a threat. Uh, she's, she's a witness, you know, a disinterested witness saying, drop it, drop it. I'm pretty sure she wasn't speaking to the officer. Um, so then that kind of makes me peel back a little further. And then I find out later that uh, the reason officers, this? what led up to this incident is that officers were called to the scene because it was reported that a man had uh, somehow gotten to the window of someone's car. The person was sitting in the car and they were slashed in the shoulder right. with the knife. Yeah. So that kind of even more makes me doubt back from, ah, this may not be a police brutality case. I think the issue here is now we have Beyonce, who is on a world stage at the Super Bowl halftime show, uh, giving a tribute, tribute to Mario Woods. Um, I think there was a sign that one of her dancers held that said, justice for Mario Woods. Okay, justice can mean a lot of things. It can mean please fully investigate the matter and make sure that the officers were justified. Or it could mean bring those officers up on charges because they gunned down a man who was innocent. The problem is, is that I think it's important that celebrities do their research and understand and let the story develop a little bit further before we tie in every single police killing to Black Lives Matter, to the need for criminal justice reform, to the need for better police training. I agree, but uh, I mean, in watching this video, and again, I agree with most of the things that you said in regards to the video. Um, you don't even see that he has a knife there. So initially, you're just like you said, he looked like he was in a fetal position. Um, but when I look at the video and I look at any police shootings, um, not that I'm not concerned about what have taken course prior to that police shooting, I'm looking at that particular circumstance was deadly force needed. And with this guy being surrounded, and, and Shaka, we've talked about this uh, back and forth from uh, several shows, is, you know, why are we always shooting to kill? Well, but that and, in this story, there was beanbags, I think four, four attempts at beanbag shots, and uh, pepper spray. And apparently he did not react I to mean, that. Well, even if you don't use the pepper spray or the beanbags and you use the actual weapon, the gun itself with the bullets, the why do we have to shoot it? Shoot him in a lick. Dis, disfigure this guy. Put him on, put yeah. him on the ground. You don't have to kill him and you don't need six officers yeah. firing six times a piece on a situation like that. Another thing is, and, and, and I would, uh, you know, kind of cross, cross hairs with myself on this one because we talked about before, uh, whether officers subject themselves to harm way. Yeah. And you saw the officer in this situation step in front of him which obviously increases the risk of injury but because of this situation I think that that was warranted many situations it's not because this guy had already stabbed somebody I think he was a threat and you don't want to let this guy just run down the street and apparently the officer was getting in between um, Mario and a crowd that had right, gathered. Right. So that makes my, sense there, but I think you still yeah. can shoot this guy in his leg, yeah, my, shoot him somewhere. You don't have to shoot to kill. My Yeah, my initial thought when I saw the video was it didn't matter what had taken place prior, why is he dead? It, with that many officers, and I know we hate to second-guess their judgment, but he's got one man with a knife, and there's eight, what was it, six or eight guys on the scene. Yeah. So why is it that he's got to be shot and killed? Why can't he be shot in the leg? Why can't, you know, officers have tackled him? Why, why didn't they have gear to 
you know, appropriately handle someone with a knife. So many different options rather than ending his life. I think the issue here is that there is no rule against shooting to kill. Um, it's if an a, officer the, reasonably the feels endangered. Well, well, yeah, the yeah, rule, yeah, it's because a, it's, it's a from their position but, but, that we can't prevent them from that, killing. But it's, no, it's still a reasonability test, though. You know, they, they have to have a reason. Yeah, but but yeah. but I think that there isn't a bright line rule that says, "Hey, at this point, you can shoot to kill." So I agree, yeah. and I think that's one of the reforms, and that's where I'll tie it back to Beyonce and her mm-hmm. uh, her, her uh, show being warranted because yes. He may have committed a crime. Yes, he may have been even a danger, but there are still some situations that we need to take care of, and let's bring light to those. And if we have a national platform, let's do it. Let's use. And a lot of times we're bringing people that are not minorities that are crazy and wielding knives. They're somehow making it to to jail. You know, not dying. So, and in this this scenario, both the officer and Mario Woods. We're African American. Does that change at all the call for for justice, or is right. this really all along has been a call to change police structure, police culture, the police culture? And, and again, we talk not a lot of race. We talk a lot of, about well, a lot a of black issues, but really, those black issues are um, class issues. And it's just those class issues disproportionately affect some black people. Black people. You were mentioning earlier on your other show that yeah, you, with, you yeah. got to tune into uh, Shaka's um, uh, American Crime Story Tuesdays yeah. at ten thirty. And <laughs> one of the things, the yeah, of course, <laughs> one of the things that was apparent was when OJ was stopped on the freeway and the officers had the guns drawn. OJ had a gun in the car. And they let OJ go. They let him continue on the chase, even though they had him. Can you imagine if that happened today? And I thought to myself, why why today? Here this black man is fleeing, and they don't shoot to kill. But it was because it was OJ Simpson, and there's a couple of lines in there Do you think maybe about, because people were watching? So I think, many people I think watching. we could distinguish and these two incidents, though. No, there were, uh, just in general, my I'm talking about police culture, is that it's a class culture. It, it's, it disproportionately affects blacks, but if you're wealthy, they're going to be far less likely to shoot you. And you're getting these people gunned down in these neighborhoods where I feel a lot of police are thinking this is business as usual and this will not look upon as bad conduct. Well, but, you know, this is San Francisco. This is where uh, Oscar Grant, you know, was was killed right. several so years ago. So San Francisco's got to be at least somewhat sensitive. to They've dealt with the wrath of the public before on things like this. Now, San Francisco Police Department is very interesting in that that is the you know, district where the officer was caught sending racist text messages about um, black constituents. Um, he had a friend who was a lawyer. The black male was a lawyer married to his white female friend, and he made jokes that he was still a monkey regardless of how educated he was and that mm-hmm. he'd, he'd put him down if he had to, and he wow. had been invited to their house for dinner. Right. So San Francisco is an interesting place that, you know, uh, from what CNN will tell you or other Fox or news outlets is that very progressive, very liberal. Right. We come out, we protest, and we push every move, uh, movement, but back to police conduct and police culture. It's so pervasive that even in what is arguably the most progressive city in this country, you have issues of police brutality. Very interesting. And just shortly before we, you know, went on the air, we saw the breaking news about the the Department of Justice and what they're doing with Ferguson now. Uh, They've actually filed yeah, it's not charges, it's a suit. So do you think that uh, San Francisco needs something similar? Well, I, I think it's good that the DOJ is looking at these cases and now investigating these cities. I, I, they would need to be a, you know, a full investigation. But I, knowing that oversight is there, I think is really going to be a good deterrent for these local 
um, police departments to start implementing what they should have been doing for a while now. And I'm pretty sure the public's attention on these stories was part of the, f- the motivating factors for why the Department of Justice yeah. has uh, laid down the law. Yeah. Yeah. Certainly. All right, we'll bring you more on that as we yeah. get the details. Um, so then our second story is about Quintonio Legrier. He was killed the day after Christmas. And uh, Shaka will tell you more about it. The, the I don't know if you want to call it fascinating, shocking, or even disgusting part of this story is the officer's reaction. Yeah, so Officer Robert Rialmo, who shot Quintonio um, Azir, is actually suing the estate for $10 million, um, saying that he was emotionally, um, you know, really emotionally broken down and mentally broken down by being forced to, um, to shoot Quintonio. And um, another neighbor actually had been killed by a stray bullet, and her death as well really broke him down mentally. So now he needs $10 million to... Um, <laughs> to deal with the stress of having killed these two people. This story is so very sad yeah. because the police were called because the father, and Quintonio uh, called, right. um, because he his son was having emotional mental issues. His son was on some kind of medication. But the situation, I guess he was banging around his room it's with a bat. bat. Yeah. And the dad thought to himself, I don't have the training to deal with this. I better call somebody who does. Right. And he calls the police, and apparently Quintonio takes a couple of swings at the officer, which is why the officer says that he shot and killed him. And then the second tragic part of this is that one of the bullets went through Quintonio and hit the neighbor. I believe her name was Betty Jones. She's 55 years old, and she was killed by that bullet. And and again, we don't have any footage, but why... Why could you shoot him in the leg? Well, why, why not, you know, to kill this guy? And it looks like he was suffering from some sort of mental health issue. And the father called the police with that in mind. And so it's here they've actually put trust in the police. And that's what's happening. So I think they need to really reinvest in mental health training for the police or sending another unit and, you know, channeling that unit out I mean, there. we talk about this whenever we have, like, a, a mass shooting. Yeah. Mental health, mental health. Okay, but where where is it? It yeah. doesn't seem everybody's saying we we will look at what we're doing with mental health in this country. Well, I mean, let's look faster because this is coming at us in different ways. The police responding to mental health disordered uh, situations yeah. and then end up killing people and then the mass shooters. So there's a lot of reasons to look at mental health in this country. I think to piggyback on what, what Shaka was just saying, I think you could easily, for instance, if there's a bomb threat in a building. You don't just send out the regular police. You're going to get the bomb squad who comes yeah. out. And I think depending on the type of phone calls that come in, um, you can assess the circumstance and send out a specialized unit who is particularly skilled yeah. in dealing with uh, mental cases or individuals who you know who who have had a history of that type of stuff. And you send those individuals out. Yeah. I think they will be able to handle the situation, assess the circumstances, yeah. or react in a certain way. This guy, yes, he's swinging a bat. He, a bat. he may be a, a, a somewhat of a threat. Why is the officer that close to him yeah. to where he's swinging a bat at his face? Yeah, this is true. I mean, the officer said he even felt the breeze of the bat by his You're head. Too close. Yeah. He said a mere inches, and he would have been yeah. struck. Yeah. <laughs> so the the ten million dollar lawsuit. I, I first of all, that amount is outrageous and. It's like almost offensive. And the officer said that he wants to make a statement or a point that when your family members involved in an uh, officer involved shooting, that this is not winning the lottery, that he somehow, you know, 
Well, I don't. I don't. I still so he's single-handedly attempting to reform tort law. Yeah. I think is what. Yeah. Know, I'm gonna tell you this much: when, <laughs> when a firefighter, I don't care if somebody sets a fire or not, when a firefighter runs into a building to do a job that he signed up for, why is he suing? Uh, so the same thing applies. He doesn't sue, in fact. And in this mm-hmm. case, it's the same thing. You signed up to be a police officer. And we hear a lot about police safety and, you know, the judgment. And they're under so much stress. I never, I would never sign up to be a police officer. And yeah. if I did sign up to be, to be a police officer, I understand that that comes with the job. Yeah. So you don't go to but, a scene and then uh, sue somebody because of what happened. That's what you got your medical insurance uh, for with your job. Well, the, I am the thing gonna, is, is yeah. that we all have, well, I, which state did this happen in? But I'm, you know, in California, at least officers firefighters are all get workers compensation if they're injured and so you can't so this is very unusual that an officer right, for emotional issues as well as physical I, injuries are dealt with through workers comp. it sounds exactly. like he's looking to punish the family and other families who have brought these sort of civil claims against officers by dragging them through the court system but I, with I'm, a I'm countersuit i think it's about the other family not I'm even just about like, this case the yeah, other he's sending a other message families, i, I would argue though for the officer in, in this particular argument um, I don't agree with the officer as a whole, but his argument was that when you, um, if you a loved one is shot by the, an officer, you cannot just sue, and and by claiming that was too much excessive force. And I, I understand that basic argument is that there are probably police officers that feel that just bec- even if they have a justified shooting, that families are just suing them and now putting them through litigation, putting their family through things that they shouldn't have to go through because they had a justified shooting. So I got that argument. Just that one. I don't think it applies to Rialmo because I, I just don't agree with that particular situation. But I got the argument he was making was that he was using this to send a message. Just because your loved one was shot by an officer does not make it a wrongful shooting that you have to sue for immediately. That's a horrible way to that But then the, the attorneys had a good counter to that and, and that, said, yeah. you know, if we don't file these claims right away, we lose access to a lot of evidence, or we have to wait yeah. a long time for some of this evidence. So to preserve right. evidence is the why Once. you do it right and away. I, and I think that's where some of the officers kind of why they have that mentality is in the past I don't think that was a lot of attorneys um, method I think they waited till to see what was going to happen in the case and waited for the investigation and then you sued and now it's smarter to sue now because now you get access to everything you need right and so yeah I completely agreed with their um, their their reasoning okay and then uh, unfortunately there was another similar incident just a few days ago on yes, Monday, David yeah. Joseph uh, in Austin, Texas. BJ, you want to tell us about him? Yeah, so David Joseph, um, again, it's another unfortunate circumstance, um, is a 17-year-old who was killed. And, and again, this was just on Monday morning. Uh, the reports were that there were multiple calls out to um, police that uh, a, a naked man, this guy was naked, just to put that clear and on it's the record. It's my favorite kind of unarmed man yeah. is a naked one because there's really not much to fear that right. he's going to like reach right. into some yeah. pocket or yeah. something and pull something out. So if anything, as an officer on the scene, I would have felt more safe by the fact that he was naked, but I would also have some indication of there's probably some mental health issues going right. on. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's immediate indicators. Uh, well, it doesn't have to be, but there should definitely, is definitely a, a white flag that there might be some type of mental circumstances going on here um, when you receive those multiple calls. And so he showed up on the scene and apparently the officer, um, you know, he, he gave him subs- subsequent warnings or directed him to act in certain manners and the guy did not. And in fact, he uh, actually charged. It was alleged that he charged. Again, this is a new case, so the facts yeah. aren't clear on this case as of yet, but... Um, and then him charging the police is what led 
to the fatal shooting in which he uh, died from at the hospital. So this is another situation in which both the officer and the victim, uh, the officer here is Jeffrey Jeffrey Freeman, was also black. Does this change anything, matter at all? Right. No, Mm -hmm. again, I think it's, and and I didn't clarify something before, um, because I don't think that there's clearly a distinction when I say that it's a systemic problem in the police force and not a race issue, because it's both. Now, what the systemic problem is, is the police force geared to treat a certain race or certain races a certain way. And that's how it bridges together. It's not just separate. Now, when I say it's not just the race here, when you see a black guy killing a black guy, that could be racism as well. Um, but it's that institu- institutionalized processing that mm-hmm. comes with being a police officer is where you target people. For instance, we just talked about this drug reform with heroin and what's going on in the hospitals and this doctor. But back in the day, um, you know, what what happened in the inner cities when there was drugs? And I'm talking about weed. Obviously, it was cocaine. You can no, call it marijuana. <laughs> right. And so you, 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 it wasn't just sending certain people. They went and busted down walls to get people who were selling marijuana and that's targeting a certain race of people that's not happening when it, where heroin is being sold that's not happening where these project, right. prescription drugs are being and sold the, and the what I used to think is well police are going in and arresting these people because these people are using marijuana but the studies show that races uh, all races use well black white Latino they use drugs in about the same proportion no no no, no. The, the, the studies show that whites use it at a substantially more proportion than any other race. That's what the statistics have actually shown. Other races kind of balance balance out, but whites use it. It's no question. It's it's way higher rates than any other race, and this is across the nation. That's what's alarming about that war on drugs that Hillary Clinton pushed. Oh, hey there. By the yeah. way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. plug right there. Oh, hey. Nice, nice. Somebody over here is feeling the burn. I'm not hey, mad at that. It's all about burning. All right. Um, so now let's look at some sentencing stories. Um, a couple of, uh, of sentence, yeah, man. Um, some interesting stories here. But the first one, a little more serious, but I want to know if, if you guys think this is a step in the right direction. So the Supreme Court has just ruled on what's constitutional for the sentencing of juveniles. Uh, they just said on uh, Monday the 25th, man, how did we miss this, that sentencing juveniles to life without the possibility of parole is cruel and unusual punishment, and so it's unconstitutional. Just a couple of years ago, they said uh, life without parole um is unconstitutional. So they, I guess the, the difference now is sort of they expanded upon the, the, uh, the situations in which basically in no case now, whether there's murder or not, can you sentence somebody to life in prison without the possibility of parole if they're under the age of 18? Yeah, I think there was some question as to whether the previous case was systemic or procedural. And so now this case makes clear that this relates to everyone that's even still in, in jail now. So that they so it now retro- applies retroactively. Uh, exactly. That was the biggest part. So about 2,000 uh, juveniles uh, will be affected by this and it can now or they're probably not now in uh, juveniles anymore, but people um, can, can apply for parole now. Yeah. And this is sort of in keeping with the steps over the years of reducing the severity of punishment for juveniles. In 2005, the Supreme Court said that uh, death penalty is unconstitutional for juveniles. And then in 2010, um, they said life without parole was also unconstitutional uh, in cases that didn't involve murder. So now this says 
in even in cases with murder, it is unconstitutional. What does this say about the Supreme Court, the direction it's moving? Do you think this is closer to justice? I think it's going into, to me, these are one of the, every now and then you you see some laws and you just like, duh. Like, how has this not been the case, right? Mm -hmm. If our, if our um, prison system or uh, the complex is supposed to be geared after rehabilitation, then what more of a person can be rehabilitated than a child or a teenager who has committed a crime before they hit the age of 18 and realize certain things are more important than others or just was hit with the realities of life. What more a person can be rehabilitated than these people? So well, they I should hope, have never I think it's also well, important to understand that these are baby steps in yeah. actuality because all this does, this case and the case before it, before it was applied retroactively, is take away mandatory life sentences. Because usually in certain states, you murder someone or felony murder, you know, in the course of a robber's robbery is mandatory life. Now it just allows defense attorneys to introduce evidence that, hey, this person was a minor. Science has told us recently that their brains are not as developed. They are the best candidates for rehabilitation. But that still would allow a judge to hand down a life sentence. It just doesn't allow them to make it mandatory. And then if they did not give a life sentence, they may just give sentences that are effectively life. If someone is 17 years old, you give them 50, 50 years. Yeah. Right. It's damaged. So it's, it is seven years old. It's a small step. Yeah. You think it's in the right direction, BJ? Yeah. I, I definitely wouldn't say it's a big step. It's a duh. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think it should have been that way. Um, we should have progressed a lot past that, but I definitely think it's in the right direction. Um, but it, it, it's a small step that did need to occur. Shaka, you got anything? Any thoughts on just, that one? Just, yeah. Step in the right direction, I think, you know. I just hope that we, as a, system now use this opportunity to attempt to rehabilitate them some there are some stories of rehabilitation but i think there's room for a lot more effort to try and rehabilitate kids especially all right and then now we're going to talk about the story of a grandmother who faces a minute wow mandatory minimum mandatory sentence (laughs) of six years for kicking an officer in the shin First read, this sounded ridiculous to me. I know Shannon, too, also thought that. But Shaka, not so much. Yeah. Well, I'll let Shannon introduce the story. I think initially I read the story and I'm like, gosh, wow. Like, how could the, I mean, a kick to the shin? (laughs) I mean, was he bleeding? I I mean, probably didn't break a bone, right? Right. He Um, He even testified that it didn't even hurt. Yes, he, he testified it didn't hurt and it did not leave a mark. But the problem is, is that once we actually look at the case, um, and I'll let Shaka tell, explain more about her <laughs> background, but with a battery, uh, as we all know, because we took torts, blowing smoke in someone's face can be a battery. Offensive contact. And then you add the fact that it was against an officer, it's certainly going to be a felony. So yeah. I'll hand it over to Shaka, but I'm yeah. still a bit shocked. Yeah, yeah. And, with, and with battery, there's no actual harm that needs to be suffered. You don't have to be in the hospital or, you know, crying. Um, what basically she's getting the six years because she's under the third, the third, the third strike paradigm of the, yeah. of the state. And you find out that in 87, she committed an armed robbery. 97, she had another felony. 2003, another felony. And so when I see the history and I see now in 2014, she, she here she is again. Um, I think you are the person that should be acting like a church mouse. You should be doing your best, walking the straight and narrow. You already know that you have knowledge that this is a possibility if you continue to break the law. 
and getting in a scuffle with an officer is certainly um, breaking the law. And so I, I had no sympathy for someone that's a repeat offender, a, a you know, a repeat this felon. This is no keep, armed robbery. But keep in mind, she had a scuffle right. with another officer oh, and then, in prison. And before. then in prison, she yeah, she was she continued to fight in prison. Uh, I mean, she's a fighter. And <laughs> wow. I, I think I think Look, I don't think she woke up that day and was like, "I'm going to have another scuffle with the officer" because it's been two years and I'm itching. She came <laughs> to the courthouse to see her son for a sentencing hearing, so she's obviously probably not but the she, best emotional state. She ends state. up in a scuffle with an officer. And I think if you know that you've already you're a past felon, you got to do your best to really. Look, walk I, think she, I, mean, I think she may have struggled when she was being arrested, which happens often. And from the way the officer described it, it could have just been like she thrust her leg up slowly and it connected with his right, chin. Right. I think it's I think that's where I have the problem is like the sort of injury cause, and that's sort of my issue with three strikes law altogether. Exactly. You know, something you, else yeah. pushed by the Clintons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's true. Exactly. That's <laughs> the major. It was, one. It was that's where I hesitate. Clinton. Yes. But do I have actual sympathy? I would say no. Yeah, I, 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 this to me seems like one of the cases where the law is not necessarily Listen, I'm concerned about the slippery slope more yes, than anything. This is yeah, how far do we go with this? I'm completely yeah. against the three strikes rule. Um, just because to me it, it, it's against the Eighth Amendment, uh, this is cruel and unusual punishment. So far she's as being concerned. punished now for something that she already did time for. That's propens- the fact that she and if she done time for it, what does that mean? That means that she has paid her debt to society. No, she hasn't for paid her she, debt for this battery for the, yet. Well, no, no, no. Oh, okay. But, but you're, you're convicted based upon the statements that you just made. Yeah. You're one, you want to convict her not on his injury, not on severity of what took no, no, place, no, no. not on how it took place, based upon what she has done in the past. No, 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 no. I want to convict her for the battery she committed. I want to sentence her for what she did in the past. So you want, no. Yeah, that's why I want to sentence her but for See, what that's she what we have to align at the I conviction. I mean, it is true. We can yeah. look at past history yeah. to mitigate yeah, I'm sentencing. Saying, this is the way, but yeah. here, let's past look at this a little bit more pragmatically. And, you know, this is a state crime, so, you know, this was in, where was this? Was this Chicago. So my tax dollars won't go to pay for this. But this, the taxpayers of Chicago are going to pay for this woman to sit in jail for six years. And is that really keeping the streets of Chicago safer? I think quite possibly. She's well, been, she won't grade no think, one else's shin. I think taxpayers could <laughs> possibly <laughs> respond with the fact that any other person with two strikes looking to get into a bar fight or any sort of incident, yeah. this is how low the bar is. You could, like, nudge an officer in the shin and you get six years. So yeah. taxpayers may say, hey, this might be money well sent, it's a, it's spent it's, to, you know, make an example. It's this, a deterrent. I don't and, know. and I think she's been committing felons, felonies with some regularity since 1987. Look, I think they were, like, 20 yeah. years apart. No, 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 15 years ago, years ago First felony no, no. is older than me. <laughs> I want you to know that. It was 87, 97, and 2003, and now 2014, another incident. So she's committing these felonies with some regularity. I think putting her in jail for six years is probably... I don't know what the regularity is. Decades. It's hard to say regularity. (laughs) Right. That's hard. That's a stretch. A a felony... I haven't had any felonies. (laughs) Congratulations. A felony a decade... For now. Watch watch your foot when there's an officer's (laughs) shin around. Watch your foot. Oh, man. All right. This one, I, I think hopefully we can all agree on. There was an officer found guilty of of raping a woman, a 75-year-old woman yeah. who had suffered a stroke. Yeah. Um, he got into the, the care facility that she was being treated at several times. The, the woman told her family, like in, in single words, because this woman couldn't even speak. She mentioned the word police and she mentioned the word rape. And so then they installed cameras to oversee the entrance and exit to her uh, quarters. And they saw a man go in just like days after they installed these cameras and they identified it 
as a police officer. Mm-hmm. Police officer is then tried for rape, and he says, oh, no, no, we did have sex, but it was consensual. We had a casual relationship that included sex. What happened with that? Well, yeah, I mean, he found guilty of rape, okay. thankfully. Um, <laughs> we all yeah, agree on this one, yeah. Yeah, we had the videotape, we had everything, and so yeah, it, it was it just disconcerting, you know, it, Here's someone who needs help the most. Again, you know, she's suffering from a stroke. She's got aphasia. She can't speak. And, you know, an officer took advantage of his position of power. It's very um, interesting that the fact that she can't speak is kind of like what damned him and what also allowed him to do the crime because yeah. he knew she couldn't speak. But now we know she couldn't give consent because she could not speak. Right. Yeah. So how? Because yes means yes now. Yeah. Right. So, no means no. Yeah. <laughs> so his sentence, uh, oh man. <coughs> It was sizable. I don't remember what it is. Does anybody else remember what it was? Uh, I don't recall, but, but, but I mean, this woman was 75 years old. I, I mean, we talk about rehabilitation, and when we talk about rehabilitation, a police officer, as far as I'm concerned, and I think a lot of people can be rehabilitated, but in this situation, this guy pried on a woman at 75 years old. You and can't he was, rehabilitate he that. He was like... That's ridiculous. Uh, oh, there's well, like a 30-year... <laughs> there's a 30-year, I think, yeah. if not more, 30-year age difference well, between them. I mean, did... Did, did the officer present evidence that they knew each other before she had the stroke and had some sort of relationship? I, yeah. I, I can't. Um, but I, I, I oh, go he so was sentenced to sixty-two years. Yeah, but I wouldn't go so far as to say he can't be rehabilitated. I, I think we yeah, that might have been a little stretch, yeah. but I think I was kind of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we appreciate it, the passion. Yeah, <laughs> it's a horrible crime, but I think we in this country we need to always start from a point of rehabilitation as possible, so that we start implementing these things in our prison system that at least get at the majority of people. But if we start just like saying that person's not rehabilitated then or re, um they're not able to be rehabilitated yeah. then we're it's that slippery slope where do you stop well the question no, the thing we need to do is start rehabilitating yeah. that's what we need to we're not doing that we're yeah. throwing people locking them up throwing you in solitary confinement that's going to make you worse how's yeah. that going to help you all right well, thank you, everyone, for the lively discussion today. Mm-hmm. Shannon, we love having you. Yeah. I hope hey, you come back for soon. Me. Yeah, absolutely. And I love my usual crew, Shaka and BJ. Yeah. Congratulations on Entertainment Law Review. Oh, thank you. That, that is so a big excited. deal in the, 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 yeah. the law school world. So yes, congratulations yes, yes. on yes. that. And don't forget to join us next week on another episode of Justice is Served. Downloads on iTunes. Five yes. stars. Comment. Likes. YouTube. Twitter. <laughs> Thanks, guys. From executives Kevin Undergaro, Dario Kristen, Tiana Hobson, and the entire BHL staff, we would like to thank you for supporting Black Hollywood Live, the first online broadcast network dedicated to African-American entertainment. For questions and comments, contact us, info at blackhollywoodlive.com. Like us on Facebook, tweet us, or Instagram us at BHL Online. And I am the official voice of Black Hollywood Live, Scipio, Instagramming, at KingXOBay. Thanks for tuning in. Hollywood Hollywood Redefined. Redefined. The views expressed here are those of the host only and do not necessarily reflect the views of BHL or its owners or principals.